0: And let's all pray together. Father, we thank you that even as we've just sung a few moments ago, that now that no power of hell and no scheme of man can ever pluck us out of Christ's path. And we thank you that he is strong enough to hold on to us throughout all of this life, in all of its ups and downs, and indeed for all eternity as well. And help us, therefore, as we come to these verses now, to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. We ask for your help now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please do keep Ephesians chapter 6 open in front of you this morning. and We're going to focus this morning mainly just on verses 10 to 12. The American pastor and theologian, Joel Beakey, tells the story of what happened on the day when he completed his six months of active duty with the Army Reserves. He tells the story that a sergeant came up to him, placed his large hand on his shoulder, and said to him these words, Son... If you ever have to fight in a war, remember three things. First, how the battle ought to go ideally with the tactics you have been taught. Second, how the battle really is going, which is often quite different from the ideal as wars are bloody. And seldom go the way that is expected. And third, remember the ultimate goal, which is victory. And Biki sums up that advice by saying that as a soldier, you need to be idealistic, realistic, and optimistic. Idealistic about how things should go, realistic about how things are going and optimistic about the prospect of claiming victory in the end. And we can take those principles and apply them to living the Christian life. And that's exactly what Paul does in the second half of this magnificent letter to the Ephesians since the beginning of chapter four Paul has been speaking about the Christian life, and he's been speaking about it from what we might call this idealistic perspective. In other words, he's been saying to the Ephesians, this is how the Christian life should look if all goes to plan. This is what it looks like to live as a Christian in terms of how you relate to the world in terms of how you relate to one another in the church, in terms of how you conduct your marriages and go about your parenting, and how you operate in the workplace. In an ideal world, this is what being a Christian should look like. But of course, we don't live in an ideal world, do we? We never fully live up to what Paul has described so far since the beginning of chapter 4. And the reality is that the Christian life is messy. And the Christian life is difficult. And one of the reasons why it is so is because there is an enemy against us. Military wars are messy and difficult because of what the enemy does to try and stop you, and to try and defeat you. And in these verses to which we turn this morning, Paul is saying that the Christian life is messy and difficult because of the very fact that we are engaged in spiritual warfare. And the enemy is going to do their best to stop us and defeat us. And so in these verses, Paul turns from the idealistic to the realistic and, as we shall see, the optimistic as well. He wants his readers to understand the reality of spiritual warfare and the enemy that is up against us, but also he wants to fill his readers with optimism about the prospect of victory. So let's draw out three things this morning that Paul wants us to know. And first of all, he wants us to know who the enemy is. Know who the enemy is. On September the 3rd, 1939, Neville Chamberlain declared war on Germany. And of course, that war, the Second World War, lasted for the next six horrific years until the final victory was achieved. And there was another day in history when God declared war. War. On his enemies. And that declaration of war took place in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. It is, in that single verse, a declaration of war as well as a preaching of the gospel, the first preaching of the gospel. God announced to the serpent in the Garden of Eden I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's where God declared war. But also in the preaching of the gospel that God preached in that verse, he also said that one day the seed singular of the woman would enter the battle and he would bruise the enemy's head. Even though he himself would be wounded, He would strike a fatal blow to the enemy. He would claim the final victory. And as someone has put it, the whole Bible is simply an unfolding exposition of the conflict God himself initiated in Genesis 3, verse 15. That spiritual war has now been raging not just for six years, but more like 6,000 years. Ever since Genesis 3, And right up until Christ returns and claims the final victory, a spiritual war, rages. And as Christians, if we're going to fight well, and if we're going to stay safe, we need to know who the enemy is. So let's notice four things that Paul has to say about the enemy here. Firstly, the enemy is spiritual. Paul says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. So sometimes we can make the mistake of thinking that our enemies are merely flesh and blood. Now it is true to say that unbelievers are hostile to God. They're in this war as well. And yet what Paul wants to emphasize here is that there is something more to the enemy than that. Behind all earthly opposition to God and his people, there are spiritual realities at work. As it were, the devil is pulling the strings, and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places are doing his bidding, and they're exerting their influence in defiance of God, and in defiance of the Christ of God, and against the people of God. We need to remember that there are real spiritual forces against us. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote these words. He said, I am certain that one of the main causes of the ill state of the church today is the fact that the devil is being forgotten. All is attributed to us. We've all become so psychological in our attitude and thinking. We're ignorant of this great objective fact The being, the existence of the devil, the adversary, the accuser, and his fiery darts. We need to remember that the enemy is not just flesh and blood, not just what we can see in the world around us. No, the enemy ultimately is spiritual. And secondly, the enemy is evil. The enemy is evil. Paul says in verse 12 that the enemy belongs both to the realm of darkness and to the realm of evil. The enemy is motivated by a hatred of God and a hatred of Christ and a hatred of his people. Satan himself, of course, was an angelic being who rebelled against God and others joined in his rebellion and now that enemy is literally hell-bent on opposing anything that is good and true and pure and godly john stott writes if we shall if we hope to overcome them we shall need to bear in mind that they have no moral principles no code of honor no higher feelings they recognize no geneva convention to restrict or partially civilize the weapons of their warfare they are utterly unscrupulous, and ruthless in the pursuit of their malicious designs. Jesus himself said, the devil was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. The enemy is evil. And thirdly, the enemy is powerful. Look at those words that Paul uses to describe Satan's army. The rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers, the spiritual forces. Now we don't know exactly what all of those phrases refer to precisely. And yet clearly the language that Paul is using here is used to convey the sense of a powerful, highly organized, structured system of opposition against God and against the things of God. Don't make the mistake of thinking that the devil and demonic beings are not really something we need to worry about. No, the enemy is powerful. And connected to this is the idea that, fourthly, the enemy is prevalent. The enemy is prevalent. Prevalent. In verse 12, Paul speaks of this present darkness. In verse 13, he speaks of this evil day. Paul is saying the world in which we live today, now, this present age, is a world in which these spiritual, evil, powerful forces are prevalent. They're exerting their influence in ways that are beyond our understanding. At the start of chapter 2, Paul has spoken of how unbelievers are living their lives following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. They may not realize it, and in most cases they're oblivious to it, but nonetheless the enemy exerts its evil influence in the hearts of unbelievers. Elsewhere, Paul refers to the devil as the god of this world. The Apostle John says that the world is under the sway of the wicked one. Jesus even called Satan the ruler of this world. Now We may not see the enemy, but make no mistake, the enemy is prevalent in the world in which we live in this present age. And so as we engage in spiritual warfare, Paul wants us to know, first of all, who. The enemy is. The enemy is spiritual. The enemy is evil. The enemy is powerful. And the enemy is prevalent. And then secondly, Paul wants us to know how the enemy attacks. Know how the enemy attacks. Well, Paul doesn't go into the specifics of this here but he does want us to pick up something here of the tactics that the enemy will use against us. He uses a couple of phrases which in general terms describe the kinds of attacks that the enemy will launch against the people of God. So in verse, 12, verse 11, sorry, he mentions the schemes of the devil, the schemes. It's a word that sums up how his attacks are cunning. They're shrewd. They're deceitful. His attacks are not going to be obvious. So John Stott writes these words. It is because the devil seldom attacks openly, preferring darkness to light, that when he transforms himself into an angel of light, we are caught unsuspecting. He is a dangerous wolf, but enters Christ's flock in the disguise of a sheep. Sometimes he roars like a lion, but more often is as subtle as a serpent. We must not imagine, therefore, that open persecution and open temptation to sin are his only or even his commonest weapons. He prefers to seduce us into compromise and deceive us into error. He is at his wiliest when he succeeds in persuading people that he does not exist. He's a scheming enemy and then the other phrase in this passage that describes his attacks is verse 16 the flaming darts of the evil one we'll look at that verse more thoroughly next time in ephesians but notice that phrase for the moment the flaming darts of the evil one attacks that are painful destructive and that are aimed personally what kinds of things is Paul referring to when he talks about these schemes and these flaming darts? How does the enemy attack? Well, other passages of Scripture, of course, tell us the, the various ways in which Satan attacks God's people and indeed people in general. We'll just mention a few briefly, though there are more that we could focus on if we had the time. And to start with, he attacks people with spiritual blindness. So 2 Corinthians 4, Paul writes about those who do not believe the gospel, and he says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Jesus says a similar thing in the parable of the sower, doesn't he? When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, The evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. When you share the gospel with a friend or a colleague, and it just doesn't go in, they either just don't understand it or they refuse to believe it. Behind all of that, the enemy is at work keeping them in the dark. And it's only the God who said, let light shine out of darkness who can overcome that spiritual blindness by shining in their heart to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian, give thanks that God healed you of that spiritual blindness that the enemy had afflicted you with. And pray that God would shine the light of the gospel into the hearts of those around you as well. Only he can heal them of this spiritual blindness. And then secondly, the enemy also attacks through false teaching. Jesus says the devil is a liar and the father of lies. The very first words we hear the serpent speak in the Garden of Eden are, did God actually say? Did God actually say? You see, the enemy loves to take God's word and to twist it and to distort it, add to it or take away from it. All false teaching has the fingerprints of Satan all over it. He loves to try and undermine the church by feeding her with teaching that is at odds with the Bible. And then thirdly, the enemy attacks through temptation. In the wilderness, Jesus was tempted by Satan who tried to get him to turn aside from obeying his father. And in a similar way, the enemy will seek to tempt us with the fleeting pleasures and the empty promises of sin. I wonder what temptations are you particularly vulnerable in the face of? Lust or pride? Gossip? Bitterness? Self-righteousness? The enemy wants to drag you in to those sins. And then fourthly, the enemy will attack through affliction. And that's not to say that everything we suffer is necessarily an attack of Satan. And yet we do know that one of the ways in which he does attack is by bringing affliction. Whether that's in the form of the church being persecuted or individual Christians suffering. So think of the afflictions of Job, behind which stood the attacks of Satan. Think of what Paul says as well in 2 Corinthians 12. He he talks there, doesn't he, about this thorn in the flesh. We don't know what that was precisely, but it was obviously some kind of affliction which was bringing misery into Paul's life. And Paul describes that thorn as a messenger of Satan. The enemy brings affliction. And fifthly, the enemy also attacks through accusations. The word Satan literally means the accuser. And what he loves to do is to make Christians feel guilty. Satan knows that he cannot snatch you out of Christ's hand. There is nothing that Satan or anyone else can do to rob you of your salvation. If you could lose your salvation, you would. But all of God's people are secure 100% in Christ's hand. As the hymn puts it, the saints in heaven are more happy, but they're not more secure than you are today if you're in Christ. If you're a Christian, nothing will ever separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And since Satan cannot take you out of Christ's hand, what he will do instead is this. He will try and con you into thinking that you're not in Christ's hand. And the chief way that he will do that is by trying to make you feel guilty and miserable. And so he reminds you of your sins, perhaps sins from years ago, and you've repented of them and you've been forgiven of those things. And yet again and again, Satan drags them up and he tells you that you're not really forgiven for these things. He'll try and convince you that you've let Jesus down. And so Jesus wants to keep you at arm's length now. He'll tell you that Jesus is actually disgusted with you. And you know, Satan even has the audacity to point to the Lord's table and tell you that you need to be a better person before you can eat and drink there. He's a liar. He's an accuser. Don't listen to him. And every accusation that he brings against you finds its emphatic and final repost only in the cross of Jesus. Because at the cross, God canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside nailing it to the cross. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us, he's cast our sins into the depths of the sea. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus because every last drop of that condemnation that we deserve for all of our sin fell on Jesus 2,000 years ago. And as Jesus himself put it, It is finished. It is finished. The hymn writer puts it like this. Bowed down beneath a load of sin. By Satan sorely pressed. By wars without and fears within. I come to thee for rest. Be thou my shield and hiding place. That sheltered near thy side. I may my fierce accuser face. And tell him. Thou hast died. These are just some of the schemes that the evil one will use against us as we try and live the Christian life. Paul is being realistic here, isn't he? This is what we're up against. We have a spiritual, evil, powerful, and prevalent enemy who is throwing his worst against us. We're engaged in monumental spiritual warfare. A warfare that will rage until Christ returns. And you might think, well, what reason do we have to be optimistic? And here's the third thing that Paul wants us to know in these verses. Know that in Christ, you're able to stand. Know that in Christ, you're able to stand. And in our own strength, none of us can stand against the attacks of the devil. Not even Adam in his sinless, innocent state, managed to do that. And the rest of the human race, descending from him by ordinary generation, we've all capitulated to the enemy's attacks. And yet there is one man who has remained perfect, even in the face of Satan's fiercest assaults. And throughout his whole life, Jesus was in Satan's crosshairs, Satan was constantly trying to tempt Jesus, discourage him, afflict him, kill him, accuse him, deceive him. It wasn't just in the wilderness that Jesus was tempted by Satan. He was tempted in every way that we're tempted, and yet without sin. And he entered into the full horror of spiritual warfare, and yet he never gave an inch to the enemy. He lived a life of perfect faithfulness and obedience, always resting on his father's support and the enabling of the Holy Spirit. He's the perfect man of faith. And it is the work of the Holy Spirit to replicate in the lives of Christian believers the very same faithfulness and obedience that he first formed in Jesus himself. On your own, you don't stand a chance against the enemy. But in Christ and by the power of his spirit at work within you, you're able to stand. There's reason to be optimistic, isn't there? That's what Paul is telling us in verse 10. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. You see, in the Lord, all the resources that we need to stand against the enemy and his schemes are ours don't despair all the strength that is needed is supplied for us in Christ in him we can have the wisdom to spot the devil's lies in him we can have the strength to say no to temptations and we can withstand affliction and we can ignore Satan's accusations in Christ we're more than conquerors And if we're trusting in Jesus, then even in the midst of this terrible spiritual war, we have every reason to be optimistic. And yet notice that this doesn't all just happen automatically, does it? There is something that we must do in order to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Verse 11 tells us what we must do. Put on the whole armour of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And next time in Ephesians, God willing, we'll look at this armour of God that he has provided us with. He doesn't send us into the battle under-resourced. Everything that we need is provided for us, the whole armour of God. And it's our responsibility by faith to put on that armour every day, so that we can be strong in the strength of the Lord's might and stand against the schemes of the devil. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for these words of Ephesians that we've heard from this morning. And we recognize that we live in the context of spiritual warfare Uh, We live in a world of darkness and in the midst of evil days, and as we've seen, the enemy is spiritual and evil and powerful and prevalent, and he attacks your people in various ways, but we thank you that in Christ we have one who has withstood every temptation, and he has defeated the devil by his own death and resurrection. And so we thank you that in him, we have all the strength we need to stand firm against the enemy. We praise you that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. And so help us, we pray, to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, depending upon him for all things. Help us to put on the whole armor of God that each day we may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And it's in the strong and mighty name of Jesus that we pray all of these things. Amen.